Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church, and thank you so much for being here. Will you stand with me as we read through God's Word? If you'd like to follow along with the reading and you need a Bible, they can be found in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one with you. Or if you know someone that needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hands throughout the week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. It can be found on that Bible on page 998. Follow along with me as I read. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in love, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much um, for the for the message that we hear from Paul here. God, I pray that you would um, just bless us this morning uh, through Tyler's words uh, that you've delivered to him. God, I just pray that you would um, just be with us throughout our week. Um, just pray that we would use these words here as encouragement uh, to just glorify and dignify you. Pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Good morning. Um, If you haven't met me before, my name is Tyler Tooley. I get to be one of the pastors here at Grace Point Church. So I I usually hang out down here after service. I would love to say, hey, if we've never met, give you a nux or handshake or however you get down. Um, But I encourage you to do that after service if you've never met me. Um, But real quick, I'll just give us kind of a brief overview of what we've been talking about over the last five weeks in Titus. Um, We love to preach verse by verse and chapter by chapter through different books of the Bible here. And so right now we are in Titus working our way through it. And Paul has left Titus on this island of Crete to establish elders there. Crete was this place kind of like America is right now. They're in this place where the culture of it is very immoral, very sinful. And they get um, in Crete, they get their Greek mythology and the gospel of Jesus. They kind of mix things up, kind of like we do a little bit with our feelings in our heart. Like we'll say, oh, this is what is important because this is how I feel it should be. And so we start mixing that in with the gospel and overlaying those, which is not biblically accurate. And so they weren't properly grounded in God's word in Crete, and they believed things that just simply weren't true. And so Titus's responsibility was to raise up elders in the church, raise up leaders in the church that taught sound doctrine. So in this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, he's letting Titus know what the qualifications of an elder are. And these characteristics is what he should be looking for, these type of things in men, these, these men that should be holding these things currently in order to be qualified as an elder. And it's so important that we know the qualities of an elder so we know what to look for in the elders here at Grace Point Church or the pastors here. We use those interchangeably here. But in the pastors here at Grace Point Church, we should look for those qualities to see if they have them. But it's not just for the elders. These qualities are for all Christians. Um, These are godly qualities, godly characteristics that we all should be working for and working towards. But this is what elders and pastors should already have. They should already be doing these things. 
And then last week we had a guest preacher, Daniel. He came and preached, and, um, and he preached the last two verses of Titus, which was packed full of stuff for two verses. Uh, I have 10 verses to go through today, and I was like, man, I should have cut this down. I could have made two sermons out of this. Um, so with that being said, strap in. I'm going to be talking fast and getting through a lot of stuff, but it's really good stuff. So um, Daniel last week was telling us how to be on the lookout for liars or wolves in sheep's clothing and how important it is to do that. So I'll read verse 15 and 16 real quick, which is what he went over. But he said, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So Daniel talked about how to identify the liars and also how the liars, they're not leaders in the church. The liars are misleaders in the church and how we should be on the lookout for it. We see liars come up in the church and what we should do is we should sharply rebuke them, meaning that we should do it directly. We should do it lovingly and kindly, just like Jesus. He sharply rebuked people, but he was never rude and wrathful and ugly. He was kind and loving as he did it. It's being direct. We should tell people that they're wrong, that they're in sin if they are in sin. We should point them away from their sin and point them to Jesus. We need to be on the lookout for the liars and the misleaders in the church. Daniel said that in today's culture, it's common to see the liars in the church in three ways. It's not the only three ways, but three big ways that we see them in the church is in legalism. Like you've got to just follow the rules if you want to make it to heaven. Or the prosperity gospel where, man, if I tithe here, if I give this much to God, man, he's going to give tenfold back to me. We'll be financially set up. The prosperity gospel. Or the other one is progressive Christianity. And there are more than those three things, but those three things are the big ones in our culture that don't match God's word. So we have to learn the qualifications that an elder should have and what characteristics they should and should not be doing and having as spiritual leaders. And so all Christians, like I said, should be aiming towards these characteristics. We talked about how to ensure biblical and gospel truths are preached and talked about. That's what we talked about in chapter one. That was part of it. Now we're jumping into chapter two, and Paul, he starts off by saying, hey, you need to have sound doctrine. We're going to read about that. Uh, let's jump in and read about it right now. Paul is emphasizing this. He's saying it again. But as to you, verse one, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So once again, Paul is focusing and reminding us. He's like, you guys have to know the truths of the Bible. You have to live these truths of the Bible. See, people in our, our world today, I kind of hinted to it earlier, they want to teach and preach from the heart. They want to teach and preach from the feelings. But as a pastor, it's not my job to share my heart and my feelings about certain topics with you. My job is to teach what accords with sound doctrine, as Paul says. And so it's to be this wholesome teacher. Today, we're, we're so inundated with that bumper sticker theology, the false theology. Paul is telling Titus that he and the elders that he selects, they must have truths and know the truths of the Bible. In our world today, the culture is kind of the prominent theology, or like we'll mix culture and theology up, and culture is more prominent than God's word, than God's theology. So what should you be looking for in a church? If you're looking for a church, you need to be looking for, does the guy on stage, does he preach from the Bible? Or does he just tell you stories the whole time to keep you engaged? Does he just give you 15-minute pep talks to get you through the next week? Or is he preaching God's word? 
Our lives are to be transformed by Jesus. That's why we come to church. That's why we stay in gospel community together. And so that our lives can change because of Jesus. The Bible is not going to change because of us, but we're supposed to change because of what the Bible says. It's unchanging. And I might be biased here, but because I'm preaching up here, I'm probably a little biased. But me and my wife, we found this church eight years ago. And this is why we stayed in this church, because they preached from the Bible. And it's important that we preach from it. Even if we don't like it, and even if there's things in the Bible that we don't even necessarily agree with. But with the way the world is these days, and in many modern churches, they're starting to step back. They're starting to disagree, throw stuff out of the Bible because, man, that's just too hard. Or, man, I I don't like that. I don't like that. Just because someone doesn't like something in the Bible, it doesn't mean that we can ignore it. It doesn't mean that we can change it. We are to teach sound doctrine. And sound doctrine, the gospel, it is offensive. It's always been offensive for 2,000 years, and it's going to continue to be offensive. And so Paul said this in Titus 1, and he's saying it right here again. It's vital for the church to be grounded and preach gospel truths. So sound doctrine, let me say this about it real quick, and then we'll move on. It should always cause you to know God better. And the better that you know him, the more that you should grow and increase your love for him. So much that your knowledge and your love for him cannot be contained. It just naturally comes out. It starts overflowing into all the aspects and dynamics of your life. It starts, he starts transforming you. So when you come to church on Sunday morning to hear sound doctrine, you should know God more and more. As you love him more and more, it starts to overflow From you, you get the love from you. It overflows you, and through you, it goes to other people. It goes to other non-believers. It goes to other believers, and it should overflow if you are grounded in sound doctrine. So your non-believing friends, they should see that something in your life is different. Something is different. They're, they're They're not like everybody else, and that is why sound doctrine, it is important because it leads to lives being changed by Jesus, and that's what we should be focused on. As we sit and we listen to the sermon each week, we should listen to it with these discerning ears, letting the word of God kind of penetrate our heart, our thick walls of our hearts, start equipping us and feeding us and transforming us by God's grace. So that's verse one. It's packed with a bunch of stuff with one short verse. And that's why I was like, oh man, this should be two sermons, two sermons. But the remaining verses we're gonna talk today, it's packed with discipleship. So we just talked God's, uh, God's sound doctrine, to have sound doctrine in the church, and now we're going to move on to discipleship. A few weeks ago, I took my kids out fishing on back-to-back weekends. It was back-to-back Saturdays, and uh, they didn't stock any catfish in the pond yet because it was too warm, uh, except for this one pond out in Buckeye. It's like a new park. And so we went out there, we went fishing, and for two weekends, we didn't catch anything, but the kids loved it. And I got to show them how to start casting and how to bait their hooks and what it looks like to do these things. And that right there is discipleship. When my dad got to, to take me alongside and teach me how to bait a hook and tie a knot and cast the rod, he was teaching me, he was discipling me in that way. Same thing as when I was growing up and he was teaching me, he was my soccer coach. So he was discipling me and teaching me in that way. That is what we're talking about here, about discipleship, mentorship, teaching, taking the younger and less experienced and training them up and teaching them. Jesus said this in Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, the great commission that Jesus gives us, he gives it to all Christians. It's not just for elders or pastors, it's to all Christians. And when Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations, he is really talking about more than just evangelism here. It's more than just telling people the good news. Because then he says, teaching them or discipling them to observe all that I've commanded you. So it's evangelizing and it's discipleship. Jesus is saying discipleship is for every Christian. It's not just for the Christians who want to lead in the church. It's not just for Christians who want to teach the kids in the church. But it's when someone comes uh, alongside you with more experience and they teach you with less experience. Or it's when one learner teaches another learner how to become a better learner. That is discipleship. So let me tell you real quick what discipleship is not. Discipleship is not fellowship. It's not merely just fellowship. Fellowship is good. Fellowship has its place, but it's not just getting together to hang out and vote for the Seattle Seahawks today because they're playing. And I know I've already talked to some fans, so I know they're here. But discipleship is not also, it's not just attending the church. Discipleship is also not just for the professionals, the pastors, the elders. It's for all Christians. It's not just for those in kids and youth ministry. It's for all of us to be disciple makers and to be discipled. Being discipled involves using God's word. It involves building up someone's faith, exhorting someone, stirring up their faith, encouraging them and challenging them, calling them to repentance when they're in sin. These are all parts and pieces of discipleship. In the verses we're going to go through, it's going to start talking about these different roles or categories. We're going to hear older men and older women, younger men and younger women. Paul doesn't give ages to these, these categories, and for good reason, we'll get into it a little bit later. But our capacity to change and to be discipled or to be transformed, it all hinges on the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. So my goal here today is not just to teach you guys things so you can learn information, but to, to start applying it to your life, to start transforming those, stirring those emotions up in you. So verse two says this, older men are to be sober-minded, to be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. There's an author of this book, and he once wrote, a young man is a theory, and an old man is a fact. Saying like, the old men, they've been there, done that, and the young men, they haven't yet. They can't even imagine what it's going to look like to do those things. See, Paul doesn't give an age when he says older men, and he does that for a good reason. So if you're trying to figure it out, if you're an old man, or if Paul's talking to you as an old man, or you don't know if you are that old man, then look over to your wife, and I promise you she'll probably look at you, depending if you're old or not, and say, yeah, you're the old man. Or maybe she won't. She'll be like, yeah, you're not the old man. Maybe you're not mature enough. But Paul lists these characteristics of mature old men. And he is making the case that prolonged adolescence is not okay in the church. It's not acceptable in the church. That delayed maturity, same thing, is not acceptable in the church. This idea that you want to continue to be boys, men want to continue to be boys, is not something that we should be celebrating as Christians. Paul says that the older men must be sober-minded, which can mean many things. It can mean not getting drunk, keeping your mind pure and clean from pornography, from profanity, 
To be sober-minded is clarity. It's having good judgment. Some versions say it's temperate or self-restraint. Older men must not be excessive. They must be moderate in indulgences of their appetites and of their passions, moderate in eating and drinking and pleasures. They are to be cool, calm, and collected, not marked with passions of outrage and violence. And then Paul says older men must be dignified or worthy of respect. They must be respectable, honorable. They must be reverent. And then the big one that he talks about in every single one of these categories for older men and women and younger men and women is self-controlled. So we're going to spend some time talking about that because he talks about it for all of the ages that he's talking about. It's being self-control is to control your desires and your impulses. It's to be disciplined and having self-restraint. I think that it's, Paul is trying to say that it's for all the ages here because he's listing it in there. So we need to dial in and pay attention. As a parent, this one, self-controlled, is the one that gets me the most. It's the one that's the hardest one for me to do because kids, they always have all these questions, right? They always wanna learn. That's good. We want our kids to learn. And when they run out of questions, what do they end up asking you? It's why, why, right? So, hey kids, go get your swim clothes on, go get in the car. Well, why? Because we're leaving soon. Well, why? Well, to go to swim. Well, why? And finally, it's like, oh my goodness, all right, Tyler, just have self-control. Let's load up these kids, get them in the car. Like, let's, let's calm down here. And then you say, so you can learn how to swim, honey. Well, why? And then finally, it's like, so you don't die, right? I mean, I didn't say that to my kids, but I thought it, <laughs> right? So do you have self-control? Older men, who are you as a man in the church? Who are you as a man in the home? Who are you as a man at work? And who are you as a man when you're by yourself? Are you self-controlled? So after self-control, he says, sound in faith. Older men in the church, they should have a healthy relationship with God. They should be praying and reading their Bibles daily. They should be in community with other believers, pointing them to Jesus and also being pointed to Jesus at the same time, pressing into God and his word. They should be knowing and believing that God can be fully trusted. They don't question his wisdom, his power, the goodness of God. They don't lose trust in his grace. They don't lose confidence in his divine plan. Older men should be able to look back and see what God has been doing in their life the whole time, that God's been there. He's been there every moment and step of the way. You might not see it in the moment, but you should be able to look back and see it later. And then he says to be sound in love, a wholesome love, a love that's not full of rage and that's full of hate. I see so much rage and hate today in our society, on Facebook, when it comes to politics. If you're a Democrat, you should not have rage and hate for the Republicans. And the same thing goes for the Republicans. If you're a Republican, you should not have hate and rage for the Democrats. Instead, we should have passion to see those who are not saved on both sides get saved. There's Christians who are both Democrat and Republican. So let's not hate each other for them. Let's be on the same team with the other Christians with a passion to see others get saved. Older men should have a love that is healthy and of God, not grouchy and cranky. I don't know about y'all, but I grew up here and like, yeah, he's just a grouchy old man. That is not how older men are supposed to be. It isn't easy. In the world, it'll callous you. But the gospel, it sensitizes you. 
So God gives us so much love. And when you use the gospel, that love, it can start overflowing from you to others, kind of like we talked about earlier. That love will overflow. So don't be a grumpy old man. You should be sound in love. And then the last one he says is sound in steadfastness. Have a healthy endurance. Have a healthy patience. It's being wise in the situations where your emotions just want to take over, where you want to tell your kids, like, it's so you don't die, like those moments. It is being able to do something else outside of what you normally and naturally you want to do. It's being able to take all that pressure, all that weight, the burden of whatever's going on in your life and saying, I'm going to hold the line. I'm not going to buckle. I'm not going to break. I'm not going to lose control. I'm going to stay strong. Older men should be able to endure hardship. They can face and accept disappointment. They can face and accept failures. They can be satisfied despite their own desires and their own plans being thwarted or disregarded. Older men should be able to say, my plans may not always work out, but I've got faith in God. I will remain faithful. So then Paul goes on to older women. And to be honest, this is a little scary one for me. I'm like, ah, like I'm glad Paul didn't give any ages because I'm not giving any ages, but I want to be clear. If you think that I'm calling you old in here, ladies, I want you, I want to ask for forgiveness first. So you know, I'm asking for it now. Forgive me now. Hold the apples and the oranges and all the, the throwing objects until we get through this whole thing so you can kind of get the full picture, all right? So verse three says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. See, to be reverent is to be in awe of God, to be a strong worshiper of him, someone who is deep and solemn and deep in respect, someone who is holy in behavior or set apart. Godly women should be different than the average non-believing women of our culture and society today. Culture changes, but God's word, it does not change. Then he says, not slanderers. So don't be insulters. Don't be people who tear people down. Your words should lift people up. And then older women, they shouldn't criticize, gossip, and share the stories of other people. They shouldn't gossip. They shouldn't talk about others behind their back. And then Paul says, not to be slaves to much wine. So this is obviously something he saw in the Cretan ladies. They could probably tend to drink too much and start gossiping, talking about people so badly, so poorly. We are called not to tear people down, but to lift them up. And so instead of exemplifying the teaching of those negative things, the end of verse three says this, they are to teach what is good. So teach good things, noble and holy things. Pass those things down to the younger women. Then we see in verse four, it says to train and disciple young women. So let's look at that. Verse four, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And then verse five starts off, it says to be self-controlled. There's that self-control again. Train the younger women to have discipline, to have self-control. And Paul makes a point. He says, you have to train them to love their husbands and their children. Even when they, they aren't like, you shouldn't love them right now because they drive you crazy. I get it. Husbands, I think this is, this is not a knock on women. This is probably a knock on the kids and the husbands because they can be hard to love. I can be hard to love sometimes. And what this is saying is older women teach them to love them when they are hard or teach them to love their husband and their kids when they're hard to love. Older women should be disciplined to train the women to live as godly women and how to raise godly children. And I think Paul is saying for older women to seek out the younger women, to teach them, 
So if that's you, if you're the older or the wiser woman, you should be seeking out to, to reach out. Maybe it's youth. Maybe it's young, newly married. Maybe it's single women. But you should be pursuing these relationships so that you can pour into them. And we'll read about this in, in, about the younger men, the men, the older men to the younger men here in a minute. But talking specifically to the younger ladies right now, those younger ladies, they're probably not going to seek out the wisdom. Same thing for the younger men. They don't know what they don't know. And they may, but they probably won't be reaching out. So older men and women, don't be afraid to pursue and seek out those discipleship opportunities. See, our culture will tell younger women that you've got this. Kind of bow up and, and you can do it yourself. Go read this self-help book on how to do it on your own. But what I'm telling you is that when the gospel, when the weight of the gospel is felt in your church, older women will act a certain way that leads them to pouring into younger women. And then those younger women will become older women and one day be able to pour into the younger women again. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Our culture will tell us you can do it alone. And what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that you can't, but I'm saying that that's not the plan. That's not God's plan. You were never supposed to do it on your own. The next two verses are probably some of the most top, top attacked and controversial verses in the Bible that we're about to talk about. So this is where I'm talking about when I say, hold all those throwing objects for a minute. Let's talk about this whole thing. Paul says in verse five, he says, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. And the word of God may not be reviled. So to be self-controlled, like we talked about earlier with the older men, you are to exercise self-control, to have a sound, excuse me, to have a sound mind, knowing what is appropriate and in avoiding the extremes, ensuring that your own desires don't control you, but you, in fact, you control your own emotions and your own desires. We must control our minds. We must control our impulses. And Paul says that this is for all ages, men and women. This is the self-control for everybody. We must control our mind and our impulses. Then Paul says, pure. Older women must train the younger women to be pure, pure morally, pure sexually, pure in their marital um, relationships, marital faithfulness. And guys, that doesn't mean you're off the hook. He's just talking to the ladies right now. But guys, that's the same thing for you. And then Paul says to be working at home. And I think some churches have got this wrong. I think a lot of churches got this wrong decades ago where this is how they kept women in the home and not working outside the home because they said that this verse pointed to women only work in the home. That's not what this verse says. It never says only. And if it did say that, then it would contradict. It would be the Bible contradicting the Bible because it would contradict the Proverbs 31 woman. And it doesn't. It doesn't say only, it just says work in the home. So we'll dive into that in a minute. But Proverbs 31 woman was a businesswoman, someone who bought property, worked in a vineyard, a woman who works hard outside the home and also works hard inside the home. That is the Proverbs 31 woman. So it's not saying work only at home, only at or in the home. Paul is saying that women should not be lazy when they're at home. He's saying that when you're at home, you should be working. Same thing for the men. Right now he's talking to the ladies though about it, that you should work when you're at home. And what this leads me to think is that the people of Crete, the ladies specifically of Crete, they were lazy in the home. That's what it makes me think. It makes, makes me think that they were drunk because he talks about not doing that. So they were drinking a lot. They were gossiping a lot. They were all involved and mixed up with all the drama. We see Paul has already mentioned not to do those things. And then today we see it where women drink to get drunk. 
They talk to tear down, and then they're stuck in the soap operas being lazy. Paul is saying not to be lazy to work when you're at home. He's saying, be a wise woman who builds up her household, not a foolish woman, woman who tears it down. Proverbs 14.1 says this, the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. So younger and older women, don't be foolish. Then Paul says to be kind. I feel like that is kind of self-explanatory. Kind is more than just nice, but it's loving, it's caring. Then he says the other controversial thing, submissive to your own husbands. So recognize he's not saying all women be submissive to all men. No, he says women be submissive to their own husbands. God loves his people, men and women, the same. And he is a good father and God does not command things of us that are not good for us. He doesn't command bad things for us. He knows manhood. He knows womanhood very deeply. In fact, he created them. That's how deeply he knows them. So let's first talk about what submissiveness is not. It is not about superiority and inferiority. It is not about men and women. It is not about agreeableness and temperament. It is not saying that wives never lead. It is not saying wives never lead. And the last thing is it's not a method. This right here is a biblical principle. That's why we're diving in and we're talking about it. To be submissive is about following, deferring, yielding, trusting, being supportive. I'll say this, a wife should never defer or yield to her husband who is trying to lead her into sin. It's also not about the husband making all the choices, deciding what vacations they're going on, what dinners they're eating, what budget lines get the most money. Biblical leadership, or as Ephesians calls it, headship, Ephesians 5, it's love. And love is sacrificial. Jesus, just as Jesus is to stand before the Father presenting him the church, one day, husbands, you are accountable to Jesus for taking care and leading your bride and your family. Jesus is head of the church and husbands are head of their families. Ephesians 5.24 says this, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The church submits to Christ like wives should submit to their husbands. So how did Jesus treat the church? He was the head of the church. How did Jesus treat the church? He treated her sacrificially with love, sacrificial love, understanding, kindness. He was not wrathful in church to the church people. He was not full of rage. He wasn't going around and just tearing them down. So husbands, don't be wrathful. Don't be full of rage. As, as the church submits to Christ, the wife should submit to the husband when the husband is being godly, having these godly characteristics. So if you, husband, if you are abusive verbally or physically, wives, don't Submit to that. Do not submit to that. That's not what this is saying. That's not how Jesus led his church. And that's not how he should be leading his family. And because husbands are head of the house, Jesus is head of the church. So one day, you husband, you're going to have to enter that throne room of heaven and you are going to have to give account to how you led your family, how you cared for your spouse, for your wife, for your bride. The weight that God gave was put on the men, not the women, when it came to accountability of the family. 
that burden is on men. And so husbands will say, well, Jesus said, or G- let me back up a little bit. So husbands, what will you say Jesus says on how you led your family? When Jesus asks you, how will you say, did you lead your family with an iron fist or did you lead it with grace, love, kindness, and full of compassion, just like Jesus did, because that's what he did. So a wife's biblical submission to her husband means this. It is a wife's happy response to a husband's biblical leadership. If you don't have a husband that has godly leadership, then it is going to be very difficult to have godly submission. It's not impossible, but it's incredibly challenging. So submission means an intelligent, happy, wise support for the leadership of your husband. It means you love it when he leads. To be submissive is not saying that you cannot disagree. Here is the meat of this. So dial into this part of the submission part of the text that we're talking about. It is saying that on the rare occasion that you guys get in an argument, that you get locked up and you can't come to a conclusion, you have talked about it, you've debated about it, and even argued about it, you can't get on the same page, then it's saying, wives, yield. Say, I will trust you because it's on him. He is accountable to God for how he leads the family. It's not saying that you agree with that decision. Let's be clear. It's not saying you agree with that decision. A quick example, uh, I want to talk about mutual submission for a minute, because this is not what he's talking about. This is not what Paul's talking about, but there is mutual submission. Mutual submission would be like, hey, honey, you're good at math, so here, do all my math homework. And I'm good at science, I'll do all your science homework. That's mutual submission. Like, she's gifted in certain areas, and you're gifted in certain areas. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about when you get locked up on these decisions, when you're trying to, to make family decisions, and you're like, I don't know what to do. We're arguing, we disagree, and when you've talked it out, What it's saying is just defer to your husband. The weight is on his shoulders. And if you're one of the younger women in the church today and you're struggling and you're trying to figure out, like, what does that mean in more depth? What does that mean in my own life, in my own marriage? I want to encourage you to go seek out the wise, godly women of this church. We have so many wise and godly women that would love to come alongside you and disciple you through it and say, yes, this is biblical submission. No, that is not biblical submission. Seek it out. Verse six says this. Likewise, I didn't get anything thrown, so I think we're good. Thank you. (laughs) Verse six says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, show dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul says, young men, be self-controlled. You will tend to want to be rash. You will want to be unrestrained. You'll want to be impulsive and volatile. Paul's saying, older men, help the younger men apply these things to their life by example and by teaching. Older men, help the younger men apply the breaks to life. So stop, bridle your tongue, control your temper, curb the ambition, purge yourself of greed, master your sexual urges and your impulses. Follow Christian older men in the church. That's what he's telling the young men. Have self-control and control yourselves. Older men, you must be exemplifying this. You must be showing them these things and teaching them what they shouldn't be doing. And for those men struggling with these things, I want to tell you the same thing that I was telling the young women just a second ago. You have, you have good, godly, wise Older men in this church that would love to come alongside you and disciple you and help train you up in these things. So seek that out. 
And then verse nine says this, bond servants or employees, and we'll dive into that in a second, but they are to be submissive to their own masters or employers in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Bond servants were people back in the day where they owed a debt to somebody. And so they had made an agreement contractually, I will work this many years to pay off this debt. And sometimes, which is an employee to an employer type of scenario, that's how I'm thinking about it. Bond servants is also one of those terms that is um, translated in other versions as slaves. And I don't think that it's talking about the American history of slaves that we think about. So I love that it uses bond servants here because it's showing an employee and an employer relationship. When they owed someone money, they would work for them. And then sometimes, at the end of that time, they'd pay that debt, and they'd look like, man, you take care of my family so well. You pay me so good. I want to stay with you. Can I stay over here in this like side house or whatever, living with you and continue to do this work because you're providing for us well? And so, yes, it would be like, hey, I'm going to be a lifelong profession with you. That's what it's saying here. And so employees are to be pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, or another word would be stealing or to be a thief. We are to honor God in the work that we do. And so as to, to just to wrap up real quick, I want to shift back to the older men and the older women. You need to embody these characteristics and qualities that we're talking about here. You need to pass them down to the younger men and to the younger women. Disciple the younger men. Disciple the younger women with your words and also with your actions. Don't be the grumpy old man. That's not who, call, who God calls you to be. The next generation of Christians, they desperately need you. So there's a book called Family Driven Faith by Vody Bachman. There's a statistic in there that says this, 70 to 88% of teens, 70 to 88% of teens that profess Christianity, they walk away from their faith by the end of their freshman year of college. We need older men and older women discipling the younger men and the, the younger women in this church. That is an alarming statistic. Everything we talked about today is about the character and discipleship that we should have. God emphasizes Christian character throughout the entire Bible. Character is really important to God. He looks for that godly character. And the reason is, is because your character, it always determines your actions. And you can fake it for a time. 1 Samuel 16 says this. It talks about how a man looks at the appearance or the outer actions. But God, he looks at the heart. You can't see someone else's heart. But man will just look, man and women, they'll, they'll just look at what the person's doing. But God knows the heart and the intention behind it. He knows the true character. And we should proclaim the truth. But don't pro proclaim truth with your mouth, only to undo it all with the way you live your life. Jesus proclaimed the truth, and he lived the truth. He was and he, he, was and he is the most powerful man to ever step foot on this earth. And what did he do with the power that he had? What did he do with it? He became flesh like you, flesh like me, except he did it without ever sinning, never committing a sin. He was tempted. He was tempted as we're tempted and he didn't sin. And then he took responsibility for you and he went to the cross in your place for your sin. He fought for you and he defeated the enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And then three days later, he rose out of that grave so that you could have this awesome, thriving, new life, one that can, you can spend eternity with him in. And all you have to do is you have to believe. 
in him. And so let's pray.